Well, good morning. It is good to see you all this morning, even though, as I was mentioned just a few moments ago, we, are, we do seem to be fewer in number this morning with all of our teenagers and helpers there. There's almost 40 people who are at the youth retreat this weekend, and so we're very thankful for them. They will be headed home here in just a few moments, as you heard. Uh, hopefully, if that uh, blue Ford is yours, you've already taken care of uh, that, uh, or will soon. Uh, there's those uh, opportunity to get our kids back. Maybe the parents, honestly, maybe it's a parent's car, and they're just like, keep the bus away. Uh, so uh, regardless, uh, we're going to take some time and spend uh, in First Thessalonians again this morning. We are nearing the end of our study here in First Thessalonians, but we're going to be moving into Second Thessalonians thereafter, but that'll be after Easter. It is hard to believe, but Easter is only a few weeks away. And uh, we celebrate this great and wondrous time of the year. It reminds us of the death of our Savior, but the life that is ours because of His resurrection. And so we want to uh, take significant portion of the next several weeks together where we will be focusing on that and we're building towards that. There's a group that is working on those details, so be in prayer for them. But as we continue in our study of 1 Thessalonians, Paul gets very pointed. In fact, he gets somewhat sharp with us today, and as we dig into it, it, last week we were able to say, well, that's the leader's responsibility. The leaders of the church should be doing thus and so. Well, now Paul turns his attention to the flock, to the rest of the congregation. There are three statements that I'm about to read, and they come from three different authors, and they are not my own, so do not shoot the messenger (laughs) Uh, when we get into these, but it's kind of what Paul is dealing with as he is wrestling with church life and really specifically challenging people in church life. In case you didn't know, because I know we have a very special church, but in case you didn't know, church life has challenging people. Have you ever noticed that? There are challenging people who come to church, and we are going to wrestle with them a little bit, and Paul is going to call them out. He's already called us to obedience in the areas that he's going to call out, but now he's calling the rest of the non-challenging people, as it were, to respond to the challenging people. How should we live together? And so these three statements come from three different authors as they took a step back from the church And looked at the challenging people in the church. And one author says, There's the infamous trio in the church of yelpers, helpers, and scalpers. Another says, There have often been described as the so wise, the unwise, and the otherwise. A.J. Gordon, from 1836 to 1895, classified the church. I give his date so you just know it's not of our generation that there are those who are this way. And you also know the somewhat older language that he uses. He says this, he classified the church members as figureheads, soreheads, and deadheads. Unfortunately, I think we find in the church that there are those who fit into those categories, are there not? Today, the modern generations may say, well, there's hypocrites in the church. And to that we say, yes, there are. We all are at one time. And therefore, we are seeking to grow more and more like Christ. And yes, it is messy. It is challenging. And there will be phases in your Christian growth where you will be the strong one and phases in your Christian growth where you will be the challenging one. So Paul is speaking to you in both ways today as we get into the text. 
As we do so, we recognize that the church family bears the responsibility to minister to each other in the body of Christ. Paul is going to call out the church fellowship. We often leave it to the pastor to say, ah, this is what's going on. Pastor will deal with this challenging person later. But that's not how Paul sees church ministry. And that's not how we should see it either. As we get into this morning, I want to read the text. It is short. Paul is in this a very quick succession of uh, succinct statements, one right after the other, but that does not diminish their importance. In fact, I think Paul is emphasizing their importance, given what he's already said and summarizing what he's already said through his letters we'll see today. The scripture begins in verse 14 of chapter 5 in the book of First Thessalonians. Verse 14 says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, these songs that we have just sung over the last few moments together remind us of your holiness. They remind us of your love for us. It is this theme of love that we pick up on as Paul is instructing the Thessalonian church how to behave towards one another. What Paul is challenging us to do is something that we can listen to easily, but it's far more challenging to actually engage with one another because they can be and are often seen as offensive. We are reminded that often we are to mind our own business, as it were. Pray that this morning we would recognize the challenges of being busybodies and not participate in such a way as that but that we would also understand the responsibility that it is our business when other believers are stagnant in their faith, when they're lazy in obedience, when they're faint-hearted, or when they just need help. Lord, it is easy then for us to engage in that work and to become exasperated. But instead, I pray that we would be those who are long-suffering, long-tempered as we will see, that we will learn well what you have for us in your word this morning. Lord, this message is going to be that which may be very pointed. We may be one of those people at the stage in our Christian growth right now that is challenging to those around them. I pray that we'd be found faithful in growing out of that challenging phase, growing to maturity. I pray that if we're one of those who are and a more mature place in our Christian growth, that we would be found faithful in loving one another in the body of Christ. That we would not leave that work to the pastoral staff, but that we would recognize that Paul is urging us through the direction and oversight of the Spirit of God to cause us as congregants, as members of the church, to see it as our responsibility to be assisting and aiding in the growth of one another. So this morning we have much to learn. Pray that you'd give me the words to speak, that you'd give us hearts to listen and to obey. We do pray for our teenagers as they are in those last few moments together before they begin to travel back. We pray that this weekend would have been impactful for their faith, encouraging them in unity together as a youth group, but also encouraging them towards godliness in every way. We thank you for the four who have gone to speak to them, sharing their testimony and opening your word with them. Pray that each one would have left a lasting impact 
on the generation beneath them, that your name would be glorified in it. So Lord, we love you and we thank you for the time we can spend in your word now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we dig in this morning, we recognize that Paul is calling us to minister to challenging people. And specifically, I believe that Paul is calling you who are stronger in the faith than another to minister to those who are challenging in the church. But we may see as we move through the text, there is some openness that this is to minister to all people, whether they are in the church or outside of the church. But I believe that Paul is specifically, at least here at the beginning, dealing with those who are inside the church. And it is challenging. When a church is growing and maturing, it is challenging because if it is in that process, you are constantly bringing in immature people into the fellowship whether that be through evangelism or they're born into the church and they come to know Christ as Savior. And so as they're being welcomed into the church, there's a growing process of maturity. There's also then that tendency, perhaps, that we have of stagnation. And so you may have been in the church a long time and still be considered as one of those challenging people that Paul is calling out in the text. Regardless, we recognize that it is difficult to grow up. I've used the illustration before, and I'm going to use it again. It is the church is that area where, as we see maturity taking place and discipleship beginning to happen, that we cannot be afraid of some crayon on the walls. If you were to raise a child at home, you've probably had crayon on your walls. I remember when we were moving from Chicago, moving here, and we moved our boys' bunk beds. They had been pushed against the wall, and I hadn't observed there for a while, evidently. As we pulled it back, I noticed all of the brilliant artwork that one of my sons had decided to scratch into the walls. Needless to say, we were in a hurry to move over here, and I was not happy at that time. When you're causing there to be growth and maturity, you have to be aware and prepared for crayon on the walls. And when we see crayon in the walls in the church, what do we do? How do we respond? I'm using that metaphorically, understand. But what do we do when we see challenging people in the church? How do we deal with crayon on the walls? We can get upset. We can get angry. We can scream and have a fit. Or we can recognize how to minister to challenging people. And that's what Paul calls us to do. Notice what he says as he says, warn the won't-dos. Warn the won't-dos. He says this in verse 14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. It is important that we understand as we get into these that there are four statements that Paul makes we put the first three in the first point, and then the last one, the fourth one, is its own point because it's somewhat of an umbrella statement. But as we get into these, Paul is not saying you should stay as idle. Each of these areas requires a response of obedience out of you and I, and every one of them Paul has addressed earlier in the letter to the Thessalonians. Paul is not just throwing out random statements that have no basis in the rest of the letter. He's addressed all four of them, and we will see them as we work through so that you understand that Paul has already called you to obedience. Now he's calling those who didn't listen challenging people. 
there's a, an interesting line there because it's easy to walk away from a message and say, I'm done. I've done everything I need to do. I've checked off my Sunday morning box and I'm going to move on throughout my week. Paul says if you do that, you are counted among the challenging people. Let's see how he digs into this. He says, warn the won't-dos. Paul turns from the role of shepherds to the flock, the role that shepherds play to the flock, to the role of the flock to the challenging people in the church. So now he's not urging pastors, he's not urging church leaders. Notice what he says again in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Notice how he started back in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. So Paul is speaking to the church and what the church should be doing in both ways. Respecting your leaders, and then he gives a list of what the leaders should be doing. Now he says, we urge you, we expect you, brothers, to come alongside and admonish the idol. Obedience to these four instructions helps us to define the line between faithful followers of Christ and challenging sheep. So Paul begins here with this admonish the idol. The word for idol means lazy, but not in the sense that you or I may think of lazy. We may think of lazy as somebody who just doesn't engage. They're disconnected. What Paul means when he uses the word lazy is that they're not necessarily lazy. They could be the hardest workers you know, but they're lazy about obedience to the things of the Lord. Laziness means, as Paul is using idleness here, it means laziness to obedience to Christ-likeness. The busiest person you may know may fit into this category. But they are idle in the things of the Lord. One author defines these challenging people who are idle as careless, stubborn, out of step with leadership and out of line with the Word of God. He continues, it is not unreasonable to assume that they are the same lackadaisical, what right have you got to tell me what to do people, breaking rank with the rest of the church fellowship as well as with the leadership. That's what Paul means by idol. They are those who say to leadership who has just been challenged to obey the Lord. The challenge among them is to labor among the sheep, to labor over the sheep, and to admonish the sheep. That was the challenge for leaders. And now Paul says to the congregation, admonish those who reject leadership. Admonish those who reject godliness. Admonish those who reject Christ-likeness. Sure, they come to church on Sunday. Sure, they look like the rest of Christians look. But they are idle in their growth. They have stagnated in their godliness and they are not advancing. I said this is not the first time that Paul has brought these four up. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and notice where Paul brought this up before. <clears throat> He's called you and I in the body of Christ to obedience, and notice how he did it back in chapter 4, verse 11. <clears throat> Scripture says this. Now let's back up to the middle of verse 10. He says, but we urge you of chapter 4, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, 
that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul says we want you to work hard and work hard at godliness so that you're an example to those outside the church. In other words, grow in godliness. This was his instruction in chapter 4, and by the time we get to chapter 5, he's saying to those who won't do, you must be admonished by the congregation. The congregation is the one who makes the corrections. They're the ones who come alongside the won't do's, and they put their arm around them and say, hey brother, hey sister, it's time to grow in Christ. It's time to pursue godliness and holiness. But I'm going to warn you, each of these four areas are all very difficult to practice within the church. It's far easier to watch some believer at a distance and say, yep, they're headed for trouble, than to actually go and wade into the water of trouble with them. But Paul calls believers who are found faithful in obedience, to wade into the waters, to admonish them, to speak the truth to them, to tell them the truth, and to tell them that they are not walking in the truth. But then, you better be ready, because as the one author indicated, these are the same people who tell leadership, what right have you got to tell me what to do? And so they will tell you the same. And nonetheless, Paul says, admonish the won't do's. Warn the won't do's. He also says, encourage the want to's. Encourage those in the church who want to, but are faint-hearted. He says this in verse 14. He says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. We must also, not only are we called to admonish the won't do's, But we're called as a congregation to encourage the want-tos. Those who say, well, I would like to do that, but... There are those in the church who are timid or anxious in their faith. And they're the ones who need to be encouraged. And we live in a frightening day, do we not? Look at what is happening in our world today, even in the political realm, let alone on the day-to-day life in your place of business. You are no longer free to come and go as a Christian in our world today and uphold Christian values without being attacked for them simply because you're a Christian. There is great reason from a fleshly sense to fear the world and to live out faith in a faint-hearted kind of way. To be afraid of standing up for the things of Christ. And it is here, in the triage that is the fellowship of believers, that we are to encourage those who become faint-hearted throughout the week. The want-tos. I want to stand up for my faith, but... I want to share my faith, but... I want to be an example of Christ's likeness for my neighbors to see. But it's easier to hide behind closed doors. The church did this. Where they accepted faint-heartedness as the general rule. And during the 
Middle Ages, we built monasteries. We walled off from the world. And then we were surprised when the world began to pass us by. It is within the church that we encourage and strengthen and lift up the faint-hearted because it very well may be you next week. This is what Paul did in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and following. Notice what he says there back in chapter 4. He says these words, and then I'm going to skip ahead to the end of the chapter, verse 18, but verse 4 he says, or verse 13 of chapter 4, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So Paul is speaking to the faint-hearted. And he comes along the faint-hearted and he says, I'm encouraging you. And indeed, verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Paul does this very thing to all believers in the church. He says, be encouraged. I know that it looks like Faith is passing you by. I know that it looks like those who are passing away are going to miss the return of Christ, but do not lose heart. That is not true. So the believer, the stronger believer in the things of the Lord, wraps their arms around, just like Paul did here in chapter 4, wraps their arms around those who are faint-hearted and says, and says to them, stay the course. You are commanded to be evangelists. You are commanded to be disciplers. And if God so commanded you to do those things, He will empower you to accomplish them. Outside of your power, yes. But inside of His, certainly. Believer, when you wrap your arms of love around one another on Sunday morning, it is not simply to say, it is good to see you. It is to say, I hope you're doing well and I'm praying for you. That you may stay the course. That you may run with endurance. And it is possible that you are both the strong and the challenging in the same Sunday. That's part of the growing up process. Paul not only indicates this in chapter 4, but go back to chapter 2, where he also says this in chapter 2, verse 12, we exhort each of you, and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to unto into his own kingdom and glory. Paul has given the command. Then he's given the example of how to fulfill the command. And now he's saying, help those, encourage those rather, who are faint-hearted. Encourage them, build them up. Those in the church, Paul is speaking of more habitually perhaps than others. You may have had a difficult week where you need to be encouraged. And Paul is saying, encourage the faint-hearted. But he's also speaking to those who this is a habit, that they continually do this. Those in the church that have the desire to serve but are pushed from one side to the other who need to grow up, Paul is specifically concerned about them. Say, but I'm walking over here today and... And it just, it's hard. And then, oh, I'm walking over here, and it's hard. And then I'm walking over here, and it's hard. And they're being blown back and forth. The result is that these are believers, specifically that Paul is referring to, are believers who are prone to quit. Always seeing the dark side, and they're looking for reasons to stop. Paul's instruction is to those who are strong in the faith, 
encourage these believers who are blown one way or the other to both sides to encourage them to see Christ at work and to press on. And that can be challenging, especially when we have allowed certain ones in the church to wallow in this place of faint-heartedness. And we've almost exemplified that as a character trait in the church. Let us refuse to exemplify that as a character trait in the church. Let us wrap our mind around the one who's complaining about the present circumstances of life and say, look up. Christ is at work. Christ is doing phenomenal things. Yes, it's hard to see where you're at now, but look up. Look to someone who is doing the work that he promised to do. Isn't that not what Paul did in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following when he said that Christ is going to return to meet those who have died in Christ in the clouds and all of us will be gathered together who are yet alive and remain and will be caught up together with those who have passed away in the clouds? Look up to what Christ is doing. Is it challenging to see all of the secular and worldly and godless agenda Yes, it is. But raise your head and see that Christ is returning for His church. And if Christ is returning for His church, that means He's still building her. And you are a part of that. So raise your head because the one that you will give an account to is still at work. So we are to warn the won't-dos. We are to encourage the want-tos. The faint-hearted in faith should be the minority in the church. They should not be the majority. Stronger ones in the faith must encourage them to press on in obedience, discernment, and growth in the things of the Lord. Get off of the sugary kinds of Christianity and onto the full meat of the Word of God. Sure, the sugary satisfies the palate for a moment, but after the sugar rush is over, Discouragement and faint-heartedness set in. Teach them to grow up to the full meat of the Word of God. And then, help the can't-dos. Help the can't-dos. Notice what Paul says again here. He says that we are to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Help the weak. The verb for help presents a graphic picture of the undergirding of those who are weak, that, that those who are weak need. So there's an undergirding that they need help to get out of where they are at. It is as if Paul wrote to a stronger Christian and said to them, hold on to them, cling to them, put your arm around them. The church is a support system, and this is related not only to those who can't do, but those who want to. Both of these are very closely related. Paul is saying, ours is a messy responsibility. It requires that we confront false teaching with mature sensibility in Christ. And we call it out when false teaching has crept in, whether it be through music 
or through an author or through a podcaster or through some preacher. We call it out. Paul demonstrates this in, again, chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. Notice what he says back there, beginning in verse 3. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul is encouraging you already. He's instructed you already to grow in holiness. But if you have not grown in holiness, you are one of those who can't do. Paul instructs that it is the responsibility of the congregation to help the can't-dos out of the mire that they're in. The can't-do is because they have allowed themselves to be stuck in the quagmire of quicksand of false teachers and immature growth. This is a messy responsibility. But it is one that is not left to the leadership. It is one that every member of the body of Christ must aid and help those who we worship together on a Sunday morning to grow to maturity. Mature Christians, and listen carefully because I think we have reversed this in our society today, both in those who are faint-hearted and those who as Paul calls them here, are weak. Mature Christians typically will allow the immature, weak Christians to be the example. Mature Christians let us not mimic immature Christians. Instead, mature Christians undergird weak weak Christians in their growth so that they can digest solid food of mature spiritual growth. And this is hard. This is hard. By the way, as we move into the next point, which is kind of the umbrella points for what Paul is saying, we must recognize that these are not minor offenses. These things that Paul has listed here are not minor. He's addressed them already. He's saying if you're a challenging person in the church, you are actually wearing down the church. There's the work that the church should be doing around that, but you are wearing down the church. These are not minor offenses. Individual failure, repeated individual failure in these areas should summon the flock to urge faithfulness in you. You have the responsibility to grow in each of these categories. And it's the church who has the responsibility to come alongside and assist. But if you insist on being stuck in one of those areas, you are weighing down the growth of the church. You are weighing down the faithfulness of the flock. And you may be leading others to do the same. So Paul calls them out. And he says these cannot remain in the church. These are not 
passive problems that you could say, well, it's not really that big a deal. It's not really that big a deal if I watch something that I should not watch. It's not really that big a deal if I just kind of stay in this area of faint-heartedness because nobody picks on me then. Paul doesn't leave you there. And the church cannot afford to leave you there either. Paul goes on by speaking to this fourth area, and we're going to spend a little more time on this fourth area than the other individual areas, as he calls for patience. Patience in the church. Notice the end of verse 14. He says, at the very end, he says, be patient with them all. So Paul has returned back to those that he urged. He urged the brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Now it's possible that Paul means all people, but I think the context specifically leads to the church. Be patient with those in the church. And he first reminds us that in order to be patient, we have to be long-tempered. Long-tempered. Patience, as it is placed here in this passage, literally means the exact opposite of short-tempered. It literally means that we will be long-tempered, self-restraint in the face of provocation. You will stand firm in patience. We read this morning for our call to worship, 1, Thessalonians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 and following, all the way down to verse 8. And the first statement there is, love is patience. Love is patient. Patience is a Christian virtue. It is a Christian virtue that is called out in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Thessalonians, among many others, less directly. Patience is that which should define the character of the Christian. And it is among the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. It conveys the idea of being tough and durable in the face of stiff, unrelenting, intense pressure. It is manifesting a quiet, steady strength that can handle the stress and the strain. It is being able to cope with the very real feelings of disappointment, hardship, and pain. That's what Paul means when he says, have patience with them all. I told you that ministering to those who are challenging people is hard. It's messy. And sometimes it feels as if it is not worth it. There are days, right moms, when you wonder if it's worth it. The 24-hour care the love and the nurture that you pour into your children that is reciprocated back in fits. And the refusal to eat the food that you set before them. It is challenging to minister to those kids when every last moment has been surrounded by their needs and attention to their wants. And yet Paul has called all Christians to the same in the church. 
It is challenging. Parents, you can look back over the years and you remember the challenges, you remember the hardships, you remember the difficulties, and at the end of the, that period, you almost wish you could go back to that period, except your age won't let you do it anymore. <laughs> you're too tired to go back, and so you're happy and maybe even more enthusiastic to be grandparents of those things. But we recognize in the church that the same value begins to happen. In the church, you are able to pour in with patience to help the faint-hearted, to encourage them and to help the weak and to admonish the idle. And then you begin to see those believers growing to maturity and you begin to marvel at how the Spirit of God is at work in their life. And pretty soon, you begin to see grandchildren in the discipleship process. And you get to watch those that you helped lift out of the the mire of their own filth, you begin to see them do the same to the next generation through the ministry of the Spirit of God. And you marvel at what God has done. And you answer the question, is it worth it, with a resounding yes. It is worth it in the body of Christ. But you and I must be very careful to watch our motives. While the congregation is called to these four responsibilities, it is helpful to understand that woven throughout this brief section is the careful attention to our own motives, our own growth. This is what happens in a family. What we've just discussed is what happens in a family, and this is what happens in the local church. Human nature, we say, by the same token, is an equally valid point. It may be human to act against what we have just understood, but we must understand that it is sinful to act that way. Such behavior in the body of Christ can never be condoned, accepted. So we must watch our own motivations and our own behaviors so that we would continue to hold others accountable, yes, but that we ourselves are striving towards godliness as well. And this requires patience for all. Paul speaks of this going back to chapter 3, verse 12. I said he spoke to each one of these. And go back to chapter 3, verse 12. He says this, verse 11, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. You should always be increasing by God's directives and by God's will in your love for one another. So what is some practical response? How, how should we now respond? Verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. First, you and I must refuse retaliation. We must refuse retaliation. I love this quote. I've used this quote many times, especially when we were back in the days of Black Lives Matter and so forth. The days I was in Chicago, I used this quote a lot. Booker T. Washington said this, I will never permit any man to narrow and degrade my soul by making me hate him. In a secular sense, that's a powerful statement, but Booker T. Washington was making it in the statement of the church. Racism that had been inflicted upon him within the church. I'm using it in a broader sense 
what Paul has discussed here. It is very easy in the work of ministering to the immature that just like the child who rises against their parent and says, I hate you, that we can feel the same struggle to those that we have been working with to help them grow out of their quagmire of sin and of immaturity. It's very easy for us to say, fine, do it your way. Paul says, refuse retaliation. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil. When you're in the messy situation of helping a challenging person grow in maturity, they're going to inflict evil upon you. It's just going to happen. And Paul does not say, that's your excuse to leave the church. That's your excuse to disengage from ministry. There's a lot of pastors who walk away from ministry because they can't handle this. Because it is intense. And it is that which requires humble submission to the things of the Lord. Paul is simply saying that we should never retaliate. We should never try to get even with a brother or sister in Christ. There are no loopholes. There are no get-out clauses. The temptation is for us to want to stand and defend our own rights, to, to defend our own reputations. We want to make everything into our control and our ability and our hands to settle old scores and to bring things the way that we believe they ought to be. But that is not what we are called to do. Doing so is like the little boy who one day screams and his mother hears this seven-year-old son screaming down the hall and she comes running down the hall to find her, this little boy's two-year-old sister pulling his hair as hard as she can pull it. The mother gently reaches down and releases the little girl's grip and said comfortingly to the boy, there, there, she didn't mean it. She doesn't know that it hurts. He nodded his acknowledgement and she leaves the room. As she started down the hall, the little girl now is screaming at the top of her lungs. And the mom rushes back in and she asks, what happened? And the little boy replies, she knows now. That is how we like to control and retaliate. But Paul says, let us not repay evil for evil. Two wrong things do not make a spiritual right thing. Two wrong actions, two sinful actions, do not make a spiritually right action. Paul then shares his vision for the church. Notice what he says at the end of verse 15, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The local church ought to be a place where kindness and generosity flourishes. I will warn you that there will be days, whether it be in small groups during the week or a Bible study during the week or an interaction at the grocery store, or a Sunday morning or a Sunday night that you walk away from the fellowship and say, never again. 
Will I put myself in a position where I can be hurt like that? It will happen. And frankly, frankly, Paul gives you no sympathy. He does not say, ah, they're there. He says, do not repay evil for evil. He says to you what he's preached to the congregation. Press on. Press on. Get pulled out of the mire for your weakness. Be resilient instead of faint-hearted. Do not be idle in obedience. Press on. And when we have followed that instruction, instead of believing as the seven-year-old little boy thought that it was his responsibility to teach his sister that it hurt, we begin to let the Lord do that work. And the outflow? The outflow is kindness and generosity flourishes in the church. You and I must be an integral part of the solution rather than exacerbating the problem. You in the congregation, Paul has said, I urge you, I exhort you, not just leave it to the pastor, not just leave it to the elders, not just leave it to the staff, but I urge you to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, and to be patient with them all. Never repaying evil for evil, but always seeking to do good to one another and to everyone. What Paul, all that Paul has said, been saying to this section is appropriate for every church. You will not find a church that this instruction does not apply to. Every church, from the earliest church, the Thessalonian church, to Byron Center Bible Church. Every church, this is appropriate. What we have here is a beautiful vision of the local church as a community, not only of mutual comfort together and encouragement, but of mutual forbearance and service as well. It's easy for us to say, well, I'm not getting enough, not doing enough. I have not been ministered to enough. And Paul would say, rise up out of your faint-heartedness. Get out of the weakness of your faith. Stop being idle in obedience. And start serving one another in the body of Christ. Paul has been very pointed. Paul has been very direct. In his pointedness and his directness, it is that which we begin to understand that you and I have a role in the body of Christ. Whether you're an elder or a pastor or a congregant, all of us have a specific role to minister to each other in the body of Christ. Let us be found faithful and not idle. 
Let us be those that do not need to be admonished for our lazy Christ-like behavior, lack of Christ-like behavior. Let us be those who will wrap our arms of encouragement around somebody who is struggling in faint-hearted faith. Paul was writing this to a group of believers who had watched Paul be driven from Thessalonica. They had watched Paul forcibly left out. They were soon to pay for their Christianity by martyrdom. Paul says to the church, encourage the faint-hearted. He says, not only encourage the faint-hearted, but help the weak. They're here. They're here. You'll see them. You could step back and say, well, that church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. And my argument to you is, maybe you're the one stuck in the mire of weak faith. Let the church come around and lift you out of that. By the power and the responsibility. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the responsibility of the congregation. Let us be found as faithful believers, loving one another, and pushing each other towards the likeness of Christ, that we may be ready when Christ returns for us to meet us in the clouds. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we seek to now respond to what we've heard in song, I pray that we would also respond in obedient action. Lord, we look around us today and we see the reasons that being a Christian is hard Harder, perhaps, than at any other point in our lifetime. But I pray that we would diligently seek the fellowship of the body of Christ. That we would allow the body of Christ to admonish us when we've been idle. That we allow the body of Christ to help us, or to encourage us, rather, when we've been faint-hearted. To help us when we've been weak. That we would not repeatedly be in these conditions But if we are in those conditions, may we submit to your direction. May we let go of our own efforts. And may we not be wearisome to those who have come alongside of us to lift us out of these places. Lord, for those who are strong and in the work of ministering to others, I pray that you would teach them how to have patience, a long-temperedness to be their character as they demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. We know this is a challenge. We know dealing with people is hard work. Dealing with challenging people in a church is perhaps one of the most difficult challenges that they will have. But that you have called us to a long-tempered, long-suffering patience as we help another out of the quagmire of their weakness. May we be found faithful to you. Lord, we desire to respond now in continued worship, but I pray that we would respond in obedience to what we've heard, that we would put these things into practice for your glory and for our good, that this church would be a church that represents all of the vision that Paul has laid out, that our unity and our love for one another would be infectious, and that an outside world would see our love for one another and our love for you because of our love for one another. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for these things. We ask your blessing upon us as we continue in worship. We pray that our hearts would now be attuned to you 
as we lift these praises before you in song. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.